All right, as you're turning to Galatians 3, let's remember that last time we talked about, as far as the end of the class, Galatians 3 and verse 27, Paul said, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is one of the two places in the New Testament where we read about how to get into Christ. That, of course, is baptism. And Paul says, You have put on Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. You have enveloped yourself with Christ. You are someone who is a follower of Christ. So do your best to live according to the teachings of Christ. Then we said just a little bit about Galatians 3 and verse 28. We want to read that verse again and actually deal with the rest of the passage. Paul said in 3.28, There can be neither Jew nor Greek, there can be neither bond nor free, there can be no male and female, for ye are all one man in Christ Jesus. There are some people who stumble when it comes to Galatians 3.27. They don't like the idea that the Bible says that you are baptized into Christ. And that's how we access salvation, 2 Timothy 2.10. A lot of people want to believe into Christ, and, and that would be nice if it works that way, but the Bible doesn't say that. Others want to repent or confess into Christ or say a sinner's prayer and be into Christ, but the Bible says that you're actually baptized into Christ. And now says now Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that if you do that, there is spiritual equality. There is racial equality. There is gender equality. Uh, there is no difference between the free and the slave. Everyone is equal. Now, some people have looked at Galatians 3.28 and they have drawn some wrong conclusions. They have assumed that just because people are spiritually equal, that means that everybody is entitled to do all of the same things. That is not true. We saw a little bit about this last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talked about the fact that in the church, you have different people doing different functions, just as the body has different parts of the body. The eye is not the hand, the hand is not the foot, the foot is not the knee. Uh, there are different parts that are necessary to do what we need to do with the body. And that's also true in the church. But that hasn't stopped some people from looking at this and saying, well, we can have women preachers and women leading prayer in public uh, when men are present, those kinds of things. Um, most of us, I think, are familiar with the Salvation Army. And one person who was a fairly staunch supporter of using Galatians 3.28 to teach what I mentioned just a moment ago, that that is anybody can do anything, was a lady by the name of Catherine Booth. She was the co-founder of the Salvation Army. Back in 1859, she authored a pamphlet which was entitled Female Ministry or Woman's Right to Preach the Gospel. In this booklet, she said, and I'll just quote from it, uh, she said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. She further asserted that if this passage does not teach that in the privileges, duties, and responsibilities of Christ's kingdom, all differences of uh, nation, caste, and sex are abolished, we would like to know what it does teach and wherefore it was written. Well, that comes off fairly strong, but we've already given the answer as far as 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've got some other passages too. You think about 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with about verse 8 and going down through about verse 12, where Paul talked about um, men. He said that he wanted them to take the uh, lead in spiritual things. He talked about women. They also have a very important role. You also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 3, information about male spiritual leadership. And, um, you know, that still doesn't prevent people from coming to a passage like this and trying to extract from it what they want to pull from it. Uh, people wanting to do interesting things with the, with the roles of men and women have not uh, been the only ones that have come to Galatians 3.28. There have been some people who have been supportive of homosexuality, and they have come to Galatians 3.28 and tried to use that passage to also say that homosexuality is also something that God approves of, approves of and is just fine when it comes to the church. So 
Uh, a lot of different ways that the verse has been used, but Paul's point is that there is spiritual equality in Christ, there is spiritual freedom for all, but just because there is that spiritual freedom, that does not mean that everybody gets to do everything. It's like that in America, right? We've got freedom in this country, but does freedom mean that everybody can do everything? No, we can only have one president at a time, and there are some other people who fulfill other functions. You can have only one secretary of defense and some other things. So the idea that freedom opens up everything for everyone is simply false. One commentator gave what I think is a good summary for the verse. He said, any man in Christ is my brother, and I don't care about the color of his skin. It is the color of his heart that interests me. There are a lot of white people walking around with black hearts, my friend, and they are not my brother's. If you want a simple summary of Galatians 3.28, I would say that that is it, and that's the point. Anything that you want to add or ask before we move down to Galatians 3 and verse 29? Okay, let's see what we've got there. Just a little bit there, and then we'll be into the fourth chapter. He says, and if ye are Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If we are baptized into Christ, and that, of course, is water baptism, Galatians 3 and verse 27, then we have that spiritual equality in Christ. That's what we find now. In Galatians 3.28, where we just were. And now Paul says in Galatians 3.29, you're also now, because of that baptism, because you're part of this one body, you're part of Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise that was made to Abraham. Paul's already had quite a bit to say about the promises to Abraham. Those were great promises that we read back in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 through 15 has a lot of information as far as that information uh, but now Paul says the heirs of that, inf- the heirs of that promise, of course, uh, tied into Jesus, and of course the people who are connected to Christ. That, of course, would be Christians. When you think about the um, Old Testament law, that could never truly make the people children of Abraham. But now Paul says it is the gospel, it is the Christian system which allows that to happen, and we are, of course, um, part of that as well. When you begin to look at the next chapter and you see how this one closes, there's really no break in Paul's point. One source said it this way, Paul's still trying to persuade the Galatians that they can only lose when they place themselves under the law. And that is a huge part of the book of Galatians. If you're ever talking with somebody who believes that they need to go back and follow some part of the Old Testament law, they need to go back and they need to tithe, or they need to, they need to go back and they need to live according to the Ten Commandments to please God, the book of Galatians is one of the best books to read through, to study through, because Paul deals with this extensively. He's already shown that the Gentile Christians are in true succession to the faith of Abraham, and now as you look at Galatians chapter 4, he's going to kind of use the image of a trust. What happens if there is someone, and we kind of do the same thing with the will, but what happens when there's somebody like Bill Gates and has kids, he's got a whole bunch of money or a lot of property? Does he say, well, you're my son, so now at the age of two, you get it all? What do they do? They have to have a legal document. All right, there's a legal document. There's some kind of fund set up. Maybe there is a trust fund, and the document says, uh, and it may be staggered. When you get 18, you get this much, and then when you turn 21, 25, 30, 40, and it is a gradual payout. But there are usually people in place who will serve as guardians or stewards, to watch over the funds, to care for those until the child is of a legal age, of a responsible age. And that's where we're headed as far as Galatians chapter 4. Paul's going to be using that kind of analogy, comparing it to the Old Testament law and the Jewish people. He's already done that a little bit. We talked about the pedagogos. That would be the person that is that tutor, that schoolmaster that we saw earlier in Galatians chapter 3. He is the one who watches over the child and trains the child until the child becomes of age. 
but Paul's going to pick up on this same idea, but look at it from a different perspective in Galatians chapter 4. He's still trying to steer the Galatians away from the false teachers and show them that Christ and the gospel, this is the way that you need to live. Do not go back to Moses and the Old Testament law. That's really spiritual infancy. Anything that you want to add or ask or discuss before we pick up Galatians 4, 1 and 2? Okay, let's look at that now. He says, but, notice the contrast, the thoughts continuing. I say that so long as the heir, that brings us back to what I was talking about earlier as far as the trust, as long as the heir is a child, he differs nothing from a bondservant or a slave, though he is Lord of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the day appointed by his father. This, chair, this chapter begins by talking about an heir. We understand that that would be the benefit of great wealth or property. There's something significant that a child receives. And Paul, building on what we have back there in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, he said, if you are that child of Abraham, then let's talk about what you're going to receive since you are an heir. And he uses an illustration really of the Roman practice where uh, you have a minor who lives in hope of a possession. Oftentimes there were wealthy people and just like today they wanted to leave a great inheritance for their offspring. It really goes back, it resumes the metaphor that we start in Galatians 3 and verse 24, but as I said, it's coming from a slightly different perspective. When you look at the word which is translated child, that same word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, and there it describes a babe. I don't know that we can put a specific age in the child, but we would be talking about an underage child. We would be talking about a minor child that's still under the care of someone like a guardian or someone who is a trustee. Paul says, as long as you are in that state... What's true about your inheritance? You are, as long as you're the underage child, what's true for you and all the money and property that's in your future? On hold. All right, it's on hold. You can't access it. You are just like who? You're just like the, you're just like the slave. You're in the same position, even though you're sitting on potentially a lot of money or a lot of property. Paul had, again, previously discussed this back in chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. I think he's probably using a different word here because he's focused on the administration of the family estate. What's going to happen to it? When's the child going to get it versus the child's education? And that's really what he was talking about earlier in 323 through 25. That would be the education of the child. As you go back and you look at um, ancient culture, and we have the same kind of thing today, they had different slaves for different things. You could have a slave who would watch over your property, you could have a slave who would watch over your children. You could have a slave who could do your accounting. Um, I mean, it was really some society to live in where you could have different people to do all kinds of different things. And sometimes people would do that today. Um, different people could be in charge of livestock. So if you are the slave that is watching over this child who is one day going to inherit a great fortune, I mean, just like today, nannies, if uh, you have a nanny, who is hired to be the caretaker of a child who's going to be uh, living in a, uh, one day a, a really wealthy lifestyle, probably the nanny's going to treat the kids how? Brings over a child and, and what she dresses them probably the same? Yeah. Good. And they, they get to play together? Sure. I mean, it's like this one and like that one, and there's, there's really no difference. So uh, that's the picture that we need to see here. And the child, of course, is going to have to obey just like the nanny's child would have to obey. Uh, I want to give you this quote because I think it illustrates the point in a very good way. He says, parents of older children have watched their kids go through the stage when they had training wheels on their bikes. 
The day comes when the training wheels are taken off and our youngsters ride off into the sunset or they crash onto the concrete. Now, all of us, I think, have either gone through that experience or we've seen that experience, and that's a really good illustration for what Paul is talking about here. He's essentially talking especially about the Jewish people since there's a great focus on the law. It was like the Jewish people, when it came to the Old Testament law, they had the training wheels on for that period of time. And those training wheels were designed to get them to the time where we could become children of Abraham, we could have all the spiritual promises in Christ, we could have the gospel. Well, all that sounds great. And all that makes a lot of sense. But what happens when you have some people, I mean, it would be like today, you have a child who has gone through the chain, training wheels and then, you know, they've gotten a 10-speed bike and maybe a motorcycle bike, and then your child comes back and says, hey, I want to go back to the tricycle and the training wheels. What would you be thinking? Something's wrong. Yeah, something is seriously wrong. My child is 18 or 20 years old and has, has graduated from all that stuff, has left all that stuff behind. Why on earth would you want to go back to the training wheels? That makes no sense whatsoever. That would be a true head-scratcher. Well, that's what Paul is having to deal with with the Galatians. They want to go back, and the book of Hebrews kind of deals with this same point, but it's from a different standpoint. Hebrews involves persecution, and the Jews wanted to go back to Judaism because they were being persecuted. Um, but Paul, he's already dealt with this from a lot of different perspectives. Back in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, he compared the Old Testament law to being like um, in prison, being under a warden. And the force of that back there is, why would you want to go back to prison? Why would you want to go back to jail? Uh, the Old Testament law was, was uh, holding you in, and it was uh, restrictive, and it was not anything that was real pleasant to live under. And then in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, that's where we have that word pedagogos, the uh, child who is being watched over by that very strict uh, nanny, that tutor, that schoolmaster. And again, nobody wants that kind of state. And then now he's talking about guardians and trustees. He's going to make the point even in a stricter way in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. And he's going to say, look, if you want to go back and you want to live according to the Old Testament law, you're severed from Christ. And he's going to say some other stuff in Galatians chapter 5, which is really pretty stiff, almost to the point of being shocking information. So he comes at this from a lot of different perspectives and keeps driving home the point, you do not want to go back to the Old Testament law. Now, that is very practical information for us when we talk to people today who want to live under some part of the Old Testament law. If they want to go back to the Old Testament law and pull out tithing or the Ten Commandments or special days or... Uh, candles or priests or whatever they want to get from there and there are a lot of people who do Galatians is like a sledgehammer when it comes to people who have that kind of thinking and it is I mean it's a harder book to sort through but it is a marvelous book when it comes to talking to people about the Old Testament law anything that you want to add or ask before I say a little bit more okay uh, now you might wonder a little bit that if all that's true thinking about the spiritual training wheels if the Old Testament law was sort of the training wheels and the Galatians have gotten to the point where they're now up to the dirt bike and uh, they've had the 10 speed and all that stuff. Why on earth, how on earth could the false teachers convince these folks to go back to the Old Testament law? How could they make that so attractive where they would want to do away with the spiritual freedom in Christ? Anybody want to take a shot at that? something to do with their lifestyle. Yeah, I think that puts us on the right road. Uh, do people like measurable results in life? I think so. You think about a child. Why does mom put a growth chart on the refrigerator? Why does she do it? Keep track of their growth. 
oh, okay, but doesn't the child probably want to see, hey, I was last month or I was last year this tall and look how much I've grown. I'm growing up. We like measurable results. Could you see measurable results with the Old Testament system? You take that animal over that you've raised, that you've cared for, that perfect animal, and you hand it over to the priest. Is that measurable? I had this. I did that. It's killed. It is for my sins. People like to see some sense of achievement. And it was a very physical system. You you had the smells and you had the sights and you had the sounds, you had the temple and you had you know the priests, all that stuff. And you can go back and you can say, I can see that. And if you talk to people today when it comes to religion, uh, they like things that can be seen. They like things that can be felt. Brian? It reminds me of the young man that came to Jesus that said, what, do, what must I do? Or what do I lack? Yeah. He wanted a checklist. Yeah. He didn't want principles. No. And people today, we've talked about this a little bit before, but people like checklists. Uh, people will talk about a bucket list or people will say, I've checked that off my list. But when it comes to worship, what's the principle that we have in John 4, 24? Worship according to spirit and truth. Now, if you come in and you got the organ blaring and, you know, the walls are trembling, those kinds of things, I mean, that's impressive. And there, there can be some other things that people uh, look to as far as some kind of physical measurement. But we really don't have, I mean, how do we gauge our singing? You know, God's not giving us a grade and saying, well, okay, you sang well today, I'm going to give you an A, or it wasn't too good today, I'm going to give you a D. You know, that's something that we have to evaluate. Uh, we can evaluate our giving and say, all right, you know, this is what I'm giving. This is what I have as far as income. So there is some measure there. But by and large, we don't have too many things to really gauge our worship. And that's very different from the Old Testament. So if you can offer somebody something that is uh, more in the physical realm to a lot of people, that tangible item is going to be very, very attractive. One thing about the Old Testament. Their atonement did not require them to make internal spiritual or character adjustments. They could go pay their fee, be forgiven, they could start over the next day, doing whatever they wanted to, and that next week they could forget it again. Whereas, you know, we don't have that. We we have a better promise, but we also have a higher standard. Yes. Yeah, and I think you see, not to beat up on the Catholics, but you do find, I think, some Catholics doing that. They will go out and say, well, I can do this on Saturday night, and then I'll check the box on Sunday. I'll go, you know, to Mass and, and uh, you know, say the special prayer and give the money and do whatever else is told me to do, and uh, I'm good. And the Jews were able to do that same kind of thing, and God got after them through the prophets because there was a heart problem. Uh, the heart was supposed to be in it, but a lot of times they just sort of check the boxes. And as long as we do A, B, and C, then we qualify for D. And it's still a challenge for us. And trying to get people to see that as far as the spiritual nature of the New Testament, it can be a real challenge because people will often say they want some kind of measure. Uh, baptism is, I think, one of the things that people kind of get that uh, as far as uh, tacit or physical thing. I mean, there's actually experience of going down in the water but that is a one-time act, or at least it should be a one-time act if people are properly taught, and then you don't do that kind of thing again. So this is very, very difficult. Anything else you want to add, add or ask before we say a little bit more? Don? Uh, Brad, on, on verse 2, he is under guardian and manager until the date set for the father. Is there anything in the Old Testament that 
says it has to be a certain age before you can do that. I think you're looking at you think you're looking at Roman culture there, and that does look like that was an incremental age. At 14, there were some rights that were given. 18, some additional rights, and then by the time the child reached the age of 25, that was really considered the age of manhood. So there were uh, different procedures, different ceremonies that were used. Um, you know, the dad would march a child downtown. It was a big deal, big deal. kind of like a Jewish bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah today, where, where uh, young men are finally considered to have come of age. Uh, people do the same kind of thing. Um, I'm thinking of a family who they had a daughter who finally turned 18. I wouldn't recommend this, and I'm not saying that this was a good thing. I'm just saying that this is what this family did. Uh, but the daughter turned 18, and the mom said, let's go out and bar hop. You can finally drink, so now let's go out and really uh, you know, tie one on, so to speak. So there, there have been different procedures that people have used to help a child recognize adulthood, and that was kind of how it went in the uh, ancient world. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have some markers as well. Uh, when you reach this age, you can vote. When you reach this age, you can drink. When you reach this age, you can enlist in the military, those kinds of things. And that's exactly the background that we have here. He's talking about a child coming of age. It seems like everything you talked about, but the Old Testament was based on your senses. You know, the smell and the, the vision, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas today, We do. But not so much in a worship setting. Yeah. Uh, you think about a restaurant. Um, you know, you, uh, a lot of people, if, if the food at place A and the food at place B is exactly the same, and place A is just um, a shack, it's clean, but there's nothing on the walls. I mean, you go in and I mean, it is plain Jane. But place B, I mean, it's got the ambiance. It's got the candles, and I mean, it is, it, it's just decorated nicely. Most people are probably going to choose to go where? With the ambiance. With the nicer. Why? The food's exactly the same. More pleasant. It's going to be more pleasant. Uh, and this is one of the difficulties, I think, that we deal with when, when people come out of the denominational world. If they're used to a fellow standing up as far as somebody, you know, robed in a special way, and they're um, used to all the lights and the sounds. Sometimes you see the big band and so forth in a religious group. Maybe they've got candles. Maybe there's a choir. All those things that are at least somewhat tangible. And then they come into an assembly where everything is very plain. What's their thinking? What's their feeling? What's their experience? Yeah, a lot is missing. And it's kind of like, well, you guys don't have, you know, why don't you have this and why don't you have that? And, you know, we, we like that stuff. Well, that was the problem for the Galatians as well. And that was how the false teachers apparently were getting their hooks into these folks. Uh, because it was, you can go back and you can, you can have the experience of all these things. Circumcision, obviously, uh, if you were a male and you were circumcised, that would be something that would be an ongoing reminder of what you had done. You know, you've got that sign, uh, you've got that mark. So this was a big, big problem for Paul trying to deal with it. Anything else before I make another point? All right, how many adults do you think like to be called childish? No. Yeah, very, very few. But you know, when you start looking at the Bible, you do have that. What's Paul doing here in the Galatian letter when he talks to these Christians? 
Remember we talked about the training wheel, training wheel illustration? He's really going back and saying, you guys are childish. You're headed back into a childish state. And this isn't the only time that we find that. Remember in the 1 Corinthians chapter 13 letter, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child. All those things are included there. Well, he was calling them childish. What about the Ephesian letter? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Paul said that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro about. Then you also have the Hebrew letter. Hebrew letter. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. You have the Hebrew letter uh, encouraging those Christians to grow up spiritually, no longer be spiritually mature. So at least three or four times you have in Scripture uh, writers, especially Paul, using the illustration of a child to say, you need to grow up. You need to be more spiritually mature. You need to reach the point where you are an adult in the spiritual realm. And that would have been tough for these Galatians to hear. Since he goes back now and starts again talking about childhood, how serious does that tell you the problem was at Galatia? It was extremely serious. So he is coming at this from multiple fronts. It's like an attack force that has surrounded the enemy and you're just using all your guns to... Um, you know, take these people out. And it's going to get even more severe in Galatians chapter 5. I'll give you this quote and then we'll see where we are. He said, a rigid distinction was not made between the Greek word for guardians and stewards, but here where both terms are used together, it seems a distinction is probably intended. The guardian, the word means, or the expression means, um, the care into whose hands something has been committed. The person was responsible for looking at the person of the underage child. The steward was probably uh, responsible for the property of the child. So Paul, again, talking about a couple of different things here. The day appointed by the father would have been the time set by the father for the appointed inheritance. You have some asking if the father was alive or dead. I don't think that that's too important of a question because the issue is that the child was simply under the, the uh, um, care of the guardians. When you look at the time appointed by the Father, that helps set the stage for what Paul's going to say in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. He's going to talk about the fullness of the time. So there were physical dads. They set the time that the child was going to get the inheritance. But there was also a time set by God the Father when he was going to send Jesus into the world and Christ was going to uh, be the one who offered the world a spiritual inheritance. Anything else before we look at Galatians 4.3? Okay. He says, So we also when we were children, were held in bondage under the rudiments of the world. As you think about what we've been talking about, as far as the people who lived under the Old Testament, they were like spiritual children. And there was a time where God wanted that to be true because things were being developed and it was not yet time for Christ to come into the world. Paul looks back to that time and he includes himself because he was a Jew. He had lived under the Old Testament law. He says, when we were children, and that is not obviously that they were physical infants, but when we were spiritually immature because we were under Moses' law, when that was God's will, he says what? We were held in, bondage. we were held in bondage. And that, of course, is spiritual bondage. Uh, I think the we there includes Paul. It also may be a reference to Gentiles because a little bit later, uh, you're going to see Paul again refers to bondage and he also talks about idols. So based on verse eight, where he introduces the idea of idolatry, Gentiles would certainly come to mind. We know that the Jews are in bondage because as we get down to verse 9 in the chapter, Paul's going to talk about their turning back or turning again to the Old Testament law. 
Here, Paul describes the bondage with the perfect tense, and that to me suggests that he's saying that you were in this bad state spiritually, and unless God had intervened, you'd still be in that state. So God has bailed you out. He's given you the promises of Abraham, all spiritual blessings in Christ, and now you want to forfeit that. Now you want to leave that behind. When you look at the um, expression rudiments of the world, that was sometimes used to describe the letters of the alphabets, the ABCs for people. You also find that being used in verse 9 and over in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 20. My understanding of it here, and you will see if you check out some commentaries, some different ideas on this, my understanding is he's talking about failed religions. And there were some failed religions um, for the Gentiles. We'll say more about that when we get down into verse 4. But also for the Jew. Would you say that Moses' law was never a bad law, but looking at it from the perspective of Galatians, would you say that Moses' law was a failed law? Was Moses' law a failed law? It was from the standpoint that it could never justify people. If it had been an acceptable law to do what everything to do everything that needed to be done, would God have replaced it? There would have been no need for a replacement. But it was a failed law in that particular sense. It left men spiritually desolate. As was mentioned a little earlier, um, you know, you bring the sacrifice this year, but then the Day of Atonement comes up next year, and what do you have to do again? We're going to have to do the same thing. And we're just going to have to repeat the cycle and repeat the cycle and repeat the cycle. And you do that for your entire life. And after you do something so many times, what are you probably thinking? This is getting old. It is getting old. Anything else might come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's the point? I mean, we've already done this 50 times or 70 times. And when you get old, I mean, that's no fun. Going out there and getting the animal and having to bring that. I mean, that's tough. Anything else might be going through the mind? Does it make any difference? Well, is there a better system? You know, if we serve this all-powerful and this all-knowing God, why isn't there a better way to do things? There's surely a superior way. Well, God said, yes, there is. We're just not quite there yet. So uh, God wanted people to feel spiritually desolate. And when we look at Galatians 4 and verse 4, we're going to see that he acted at just the right time. What about paganism? Could, could it offer salvation? No. No. And people, if you think about going to a doctor, uh, you know, you keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. And each time the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. Eventually you get to the point where you're wondering, uh, you know, isn't there somebody else that can finally help me? And that's kind of where the world was spiritually. Everybody was in a state of spiritual bondage. All right. Trying to make a little application to our day and time. If people are not following the truth, are they also in spiritual bondage? Yes. Yes. Some of, their, uh, some of them are in spiritual bondage because they're trying to go back and follow some part of the Old Testament law. Some of them are in spiritual bondage because they figured out some of the New Testament but not the rest. And that is a very, very bad place to be. One of the problems in the ancient world, and it looks like in some ways our world's going back to that, astrology was something that kept people in a state of spiritual bondage. Anybody ever find somebody that's tied in with astrology or numbers or the stars or... Um, you know, anything like that, they feel like their their life is being directed somehow by those kinds of things. They read the horoscope. Anybody ever come across somebody like that? I'm going to have a bad day. I'm going to have a good day. There are people out there who literally live their lives in that kind of way. You know, I saw a sign that's going to be good or bad for me today, and uh, that's not a good way to live. That is spiritual bondage. Anything that you want to ask before we come down to Galatians 4.4? 4?
Okay, I'm going to divide this into A and B. Let's talk first about the first part, and that is, Paul says, but when the fullness of the time came. Now, we've got the people in a state of spiritual bondage, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. It's almost like the um, people, the Jews, the Hebrews in Egypt. You're there for 400 or so years of captivity, and you've seen generation after generation come and go, and after 400 years, what are you thinking? In spiritual captivity. It's time for change. We want to get out. And God allowed the world to get to a point with Judaism and with false religions. There was a sin. There was a superstition. All the failures as far as religion. And now God intervenes in human history at just the right time to send the Son into the world. Remember what we talked about in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? The child is under that guardian. The child is under the care and the control. The estate is under the control until the father's appointed time. Now you see this same point coming through in the spiritual realm. Jesus was going to come at just the right time and did. And Paul interjects that by the conjunction but in the ASV. He says, but when the fullness of time came. Man was lost. We know that from verse 3. But God intervened to save him. And uh, heaven had sent other messengers prior to this time. We've got the prophets. We've got some other great men. But God saved the greatest and the fullest gift for the fullness of time. When you look at the word which is translated fullness, it's used in some other places in the Bible. One of those places would be Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. In Jesus dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How much of the Godhead do you think was in Jesus? All of it. All of it. It was complete. There was nothing that was lacking. And I think we have to see the same sense here that when we talk about the fullness of time, the time was ripe, the time was exact, there was not going to be ever a better time in all of human history. It was like God looked down to the annals of human history and said, it is at this very moment, in this very place, that Jesus needs to come into the world and he made that happen. You see this being reflected in the Old Testament. You can go back to Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You've got this dream by Nebuchadnezzar. And we've talked about that at different times. I'll give you kind of a quick overview. You may remember that the um, dream starts out with the head, and that, of course, would have been the kingdom of Babylon. That was from 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. So God's been moving throughout human history, but about 600 years before Jesus comes into the world, things really begin to pick up steam. After the Babylonian kingdom went out of power, anybody remember who was in power next? It was the Medes and the... Persians, they were in power from 536 to 332 BC. So again, that's getting very, very close to the time of Christ. And after we have Babylon, after we have the uh, Medo-Persia kingdom, then who comes along? Alexander the Great. Great. And uh, what was he like? Was he some wimp or he was pretty important? Great. All right, he was Alexander the Great. And what did he want to do? He wanted to conquer. He He wanted to conquer everybody. He wanted to conquer the world. Well, if you're going to send Jesus into the world, might it be nice to have things uh, sort of uniform as far as the world? I mean, that would really be helpful. So Alexander the Great really does help as far as preparing the world for Christ. And then after we get through Babylon and Medo-Persia and the Greeks, they have their time. That, of course, would have been from about 332 to 167 B.C. Then who comes on the scene next? We read about them in the New Testament. We read about the, the Romans. Rome comes into power, and Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, 31 B.C. to 14 A.D., and that was an ideal time for Christ to come into the world. Now, backing up a little bit to those four, when you think about the Babylonians, 
Uh, it seems like, and this is not in the Bible, but what we can tell from history, it looks like the Jewish synagogue was developed or created or started during the time of, of Babylon. You've got the Babylonians taking the Jews into captivity. The Jews still wanted to keep some semblance of faith and religion, so they started the synagogues. How did those synagogues ultimately help the gospel and Christians? They provided a meeting place. Yeah, they provided a meeting place, and along with that meeting place, who was there? Who was coming to the meeting place? Jews, and the Jews were familiar with what? The scripture, the old law, which happened to talk about who? Christ. So here is God, 600 or so years before Jesus comes into the world, um, preparing the world in this particular way through the Babylonians using the Jewish synagogues, so that was pretty amazing. Well, if you're going to do that, it's nice to have that set up, but do you want chaos in the world or do you want law and order? You want law and order. I mean, if you're going to spread a message, it's nice if you have peaceful conditions. And that's where the Medes and the Persians come into uh, the, the, the picture. They gave the world law and order. In fact, the Romans borrowed several ideas as far as laws from the Medes and Persians. All right, then we have the Greeks coming into power. And the Greeks, what would have been their major contribution? All right, the Greeks give the world a language. They give the world a universal language. You've got Alexander, he's going throughout the world, he's spreading Greek culture, and they take the language with them. If you're going to take this message, and again, there are spiritual gifts like tongues and the interpretation of tongues, but if you're going to take a message into the world, it's going to be really nice if everybody speaks the same language, isn't it? Today we can sort of make do with translation apps and other things, but if you have everybody sort of on the same page, that really, really helps. You also find that Greek became what is sometimes referred to as a dead language. It's a very precise language. Uh, we talk about that precision sometimes in class. And some believe, and I, I, I suspect that I'm in the same category, but some think that if the language dies, in other words, if it's frozen in time, that's going to uh, help protect that language from change. That makes it a little easier for us if we want to go back and look at what a word means uh, we're not having to, like we do with English, say, okay, well, 20 years ago this word meant this, and then 30 years ago this word meant this. As far as the language of the New Testament, we can go back and see how people actually used that language in the first century. Then, what kingdom was that fourth kingdom? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greeks, and then the Romans come into power. All right, so we've got the synagogues, and we've got law and order, and we've also uh, got a language. What might else? What might else be helpful to take the gospel into all the world? What else could you use? Road. All right, you could use a road system, right? Uh, you can probably make do, get a donkey, or fight. But uh, we've got roads that have lasted for two thousand years. That is a long time. Can you imagine in our area if we had roads which lasted for two thousand years? Wouldn't have the potholes and the other things that we have. That is an amazing road system. And the uh, Romans, they also gave us a postal system. There was unparalleled peace throughout the Roman world, which helped spread the um, uh, gospel. All right, then you've also got Judaism that had been in the world for about 1,500 years that had given at least some people a proper knowledge of God. So the world was providentially prepared for God. In addition to all that, what do we mean when we talk about the silent period? From Malachi to Matthew, how many years do we have roughly? 400 years. If God has not been heard from in 400 years, do you think people are going to be open for a message, ready to receive information from him? They are. 
And that's what we find in the New Testament. When that opens, people are looking, people are searching, people are thinking about God, they are anxious for a message. You also have this issue. With all the things that have happened in the ancient world, you have the old pagan religions, they're dying off. It's like going to the doctor, as I said earlier. Uh, you've been and you've been, you've been, and the doctor doesn't have any ideas. And after all the failures, you're kind of disgusted with that. You're ready to give up on the doctor, and you're ready to look for something else. So the old religions were dying. Philosophy had been tried, and it was shown to be empty. It was shown to be powerless. Uh, there were some strange mystery religions springing up in the empire, and still people felt like things were spiritually bankrupt. So there was a great spiritual hunger in the world. People had tried art. They had tried education. They had tried culture. They tried civilization, even the law of Moses. But just as Paul said in Galatians, they had been under that state of spiritual bondage and they were looking for something else. Now, I do find something that's a little encouraging there. As we look at our world right now, it looks like a lot of people have tried uh, everything but God and they're still searching for something. If God lets the world stand long enough, do you think it's possible where people can say, look, we've, we've checked out pretty much everything out there and there is nothing really that fits for us. We need someone or we need something else that's better to make things work. Maybe it's God. Do you think that could happen to our country? It's possible. It's happened before. Russia went through a little bit of that for different reasons. And if history is a good indicator, things could turn around and turn around in a great way, but we could have a very rough period before we get through that. Um, I'll give you this, and then that's going to have to about wrap it up for today. One government would have allowed the first century preachers to go from city to city, to country to country. The priests and princesses of the heathen world had been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome had all successfully proved that the world, by its wisdom, knew not God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Notwithstanding their mighty conquerors and poets, historians, architects, and philosophers, the kingdoms of the world were full of dark idolatry. It was indeed due time, Galatians 4.4, 4, for God to send down a mighty Savior. Anything that you want to add or ask as far as a final thought? All right, let's see if there's anything. Uh, let me give you this one of the point. Um, when was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Anybody remember the year? All right, 70 AD. What if Jesus had come after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed? Would that have been a problem? If Jesus, what would have been contained in the temple? What kind of records? The genealogies. All right. Were the genealogies important for Jesus? Yeah, they were. We've got two accounts, Matthew and Luke, who both record Jesus' genealogies. So if Jesus had come after 70 AD, would that have been a problem? Yes, that would have been a big problem. Had he come much earlier, he probably would not have been crucified. He probably would have been stoned. So you have not only the four powers that also work together to providentially make things right for Christ. Uh, when you think about what the Romans were doing as far as the stonings versus crucifixions, the records, Jesus came at just the right time. I would argue that Jesus came at the exact time, even the right day, maybe even the right hour. God really timed this down to the nth level or the nth degree.